Welcome to another episode of the Untitled Podcast. Let's discuss Sly and the Family Stone. What you are about to hear is deeply disturbing. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, cats and kitties, hippies and squares. Yeah, here we go. talking about Sly and the Family Stone today and they've always been one of my favorite bands. They're a band that I, I think that years later get ignored or, or people just don't think much about them and right. a lot of that has to do with the way they ended up but as far as their influence, massively influenced, I would say just off the top of my head, obviously Prince. Right. Prince's whole initial deal was straight off Sly and the Family Stone. Yes. He wanted to have an integrated band racially and uh, gender-wise. Mm-hmm. And if you see, you know, 1999, you know, he's got, uh, I believe, a white drummer, a white keyboard player, a white and a black keyboard player, black bass player. Right. It's very integrated and very much him trying to at least give that appearance. No, I mean, Sly and the Family Stone, they, they got big um, at what... Um, well, they started in the, in the late 60s. An integrated band, even at that point, that was a big, big deal? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so, so Sly Stone, you know, basically started off as a DJ. He was there in the San Francisco era before it got ugly. The idea of revolution was a positive thing at that point. So you can imagine when the whole Summer of Love thing started, there was just this really positive, you know, vibe around it. Oh, yeah. And well, well the, the first two records uh, that I listened to, real positive. Very positive, lyrically saying, let's let's get along, let's, you know, let's do this. Yeah, it, it was like 
let's just have fun let's party that that's what it sounded like yeah yeah <laughs> which is you know something that musically brings out the best and the worst i'm not a person who normally loves positive happy upbeat music honestly i don't know why that is when it comes to Sly and the Family Stone, you put on Dance to the Music. Oh, yeah. And you have to dance. I mean, it's 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 all the best stuff. And, and it just and the bass playing. I, I mean, a huge, huge shout-out to Larry Graham. And uh, I think he was at the first four records he played on. He was, yeah. What happened is the, the idea of the band disintegrated slowly over the course of the records, and he went with them. But... If we start with the bass playing, which is so crucial to those records, just, just perfect bass playing. I mean, you, you can't you can't be a bass player and not love this music. Larry Graham invented slap bass. To make up for not having the bass drum, I would thump the strings with my thumb. Uh, like a bass drum, and then I would pluck the strings with my finger, uh, like to make up for the backbeat snare drum. And it's kind of like playing the, the uh, drums on the bass. So that's how I developed the style. And then uh, Sly was invited by this uh, lady to come down and hear me play the bass. He loved what he heard and uh, asked me to join his band, which became Sly and the Family Stone. And it was through that that the, my style of playing the bass became popular. Central is that oh funk yeah music. pretty much slap bass yeah I mean that that became synonymous with funk music absolutely and and actually ended up you know being a part of uh, things like uh, industrial music too for the noise like when, when I played bass in my band that was more commercial soul jazz whatever I did that too but not Larry Grammish you know it, it just as a way to get a different percussive sound um, same thing with corn. He would use the bass as a very percussive instrument. And then later on, uh, at some point, we'll talk about King Crimson and Tony Levin used it for both. You know, you can't understate the importance of slap bass and funk bass in music going forward through all kinds of genres. Well, that's the thing. I mean, uh, uh, the first first couple of times I listened to, to these records, I mean, I was listening just to the overall music, and then I started really paying attention to the bass. They didn't start doing any of the slap stuff until probably the third record. That's correct. But the, the first two records, the bass playing is just unbelievable. And I actually, I mean, the, the slap playing is, is unbelievable, but I'm just the regular fingered playing of the first two records is just phenomenal and probably I like that even more so than the slap bass. about 66 is when the technology changed and allowed bass and I mean the sound of bass deep bass 
to really come through on records where it had not before. Right. I mean, before they, they were badly miking uh, upright basses. The bandwidth, it just wasn't there for that. So if you listen to, like, the Beatles, everything up to Rain and Paperback Rider, like, if you put on any, any bass, you know, if you want to take an example of any of Paul McCartney's bass playing before that single and then after, there's a monumental shift, and it's not his playing as much. It's the, it's the fact that it captures his playing. Right. And that wasn't done before. Once you had a guy like Larry Graham, who used to have to fight to get his sound heard on record, were you able to capture that live, and then he could get into the in- intricacies right. of his bass playing. Oh, it's it's just unbelievable. The the phrasing, the the, the way he this guy structures a line, is just incredible. And well, that's what I don't I was know if you knew this, it. but Larry Graham was he may still be, but he has worked with Prince for I don't know the last dozen years or something. Really? Yeah, yeah. He um, and he's a Jehovah's Witness, as we talked about with uh, Prince being a Jehovah's Witness. Right. So uh, Larry Graham and Prince have this thing. Yeah, Larry Graham, just monumentally important to music, much less this band. Right. What Sly was doing was really, truly birthing a giant piece of soul music. And not just soul music, I mean rock music. He was bringing everything into this. That style of music is now so common, and it's been around for so many years that... I guess it's hard to to listen to it and appreciate it the way people would have appreciated it in 67 or 68 Absolutely. when it came out. Absolutely. Well, I think the main thing was that people were really ready for something. And Motown was pretty much at its height or, you know, right in there. It hadn't started to decline at all. People were just glad to hear something positive. Onset of the summer of love that it was all positive it was all good and and part of the reason that it went away is a huge reason as to why sly and the family stone went away higher, higher. what i'd like you to do 
I will say some of the later records when he started getting uh, a little militant yeah. and started getting like overtly political right. then I, I am not going to say I tuned out I mean the, the music is still fantastic but I didn't enjoy it as much as those first three records well I you know I'm I to me it's two different things but I love them equally I, I actually like the later period better do you but because it was accidentally inventive along the way see what happened was so you got Sly Stone, he's a young dude, he's a DJ, he's coming up in San Francisco, everything's positive for the most part, it really feels like some positive things are going to happen. Well, as many, many, many stories from the 60s go, that started to rot, and the drugs became harder, and the people who started coming into the scene didn't have the same ideals and, and motives, and naive people, including Sly Stone, were taken advantage of and just driven out of being a, a positive force. What happened in this specific case, and this happens to a lot of black artists who cross over, in this case, he had the Black Panthers come to him and demand that he fire his white manager, his white bandmates, and start singing about politically relevant songs in their eyes. This happened to Prince, this happened to Jimi Hendrix, this happened to Michael Jackson, this happened to Chuck D, where these artists who cannot be argued as not being black enough were told they were not black enough. And we're getting not only the typical racism that, you know, black artists and black people in general got in that era. Right. But now is also getting pushed from the other side. So it was almost like they were in between two uh, pieces of sandpaper getting whittled down. And it was all over racism and, and stuff. And so, you know, when you see Sly Stone go on TV back in this era where this is happening, you can see it. Like I have, um, I've seen a clip of him with Richard Pryor on the Dick Cavett show. And Richard Pryor, in my opinion, is egging him on to try to, I don't know, just, I don't, I don't know. His motives were not Sly's. Right. Sly is there and Sly is clearly high. Yeah. And, um, but... Richard is also appearing to be high, but more angry than high. And I think that was the thing with Sly. With Sly is not an angry person underneath, even when you see inter interviews with him now. This is really kind of a reasonably gentle man underneath it all who still tries to like say things that are positive. You know, he said that he wanted to form a new band and he wanted it to be all albinos. And somebody said, oh, he's just trying to be weird or... Why would you want to do that? And his thing is, because then they're black and white and people just leave me alone. Right. And it's sad. That's really sad. Yeah, it is. But the same things happened to Prince and Jimi Hendrix. Jimi Hendrix also had 
uh, mafia elements and organized crime elements of Black Panthers coming to him demanding this or that simply because he was black and he was selling records to white people. Right. You know, so that is something that doesn't get talked about very much in music, but it whittled him down. You know, by the time he started getting to like fresh and uh, small talk and certainly the records after, the mood, the sound, the feel, everything was just so downer, but still brilliant. See, I didn't listen to anything beyond small talk. And you really don't need to unless you are a major fan or just doing it for research. It's not that it's so bad. In fact, some of those records I think are great despite all this, but they have like a, a comparatively tame and watered down and kind of sad feel. Somebody else's medicine could be a poison to you But you can always bet it some Cause when you pay you play Because all the records after that period are named things like, Hey, I'm back. Or, I'm back on the right track. Hey, I got my shit together. Please buy this record. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, And it just, it, I don't Pathetic. know. Yeah, at this point, I honestly think there was some uh, mental issues that may not have been there before. Well, I mean, he he was doing some serious drugs. He was doing PCP. Well, and yeah, and that, that PCP has a long, sordid history. Whatever happened to Sly Stone? I would say the same thing if I heard and saw a person a lot on the radio and saw them on television and then I didn't see them all of a sudden. And I think that is the basic reason because it's nice to be missed. It makes you feel like you're on the right track. If somebody says, well, where is Sly? I've been relaxing. Yeah, but there are other people really important in the band too because obviously there's Sly and obviously there's Larry, which which are really the two. But, you know, Cynthia Robinson, who sings a lot of the female parts on the record, she was the first, like, out-front female trumpet player in rock, much less other things. And she came up with some of this stuff where she would play bits, step back, spin her trumpet, throw in some backing vocals, and then jump back up in the mic and, and blast, you know, some trumpet parts. So she was integral. She died last year. She was like 71 years old. You you also had Freddie Stone and Jerry Martini. They were honored to play with him and everything. And in fact, the whole band at that point loved him because he was the ideal band leader. He clearly was a genius, but he let everybody have their piece, their part, and their personality right. come through in the music. It was only after the drugs and after all the rot started setting in that this all fell away. And they did fall away piece by piece. They were replaced by interesting people, though. Do you know who Andy Newmark is, the drummer? No. Andy Newmark is is a really important drummer in music. I first kind of came to know him because he played with Roxy Music. And he came in at some point, the last official Sly Stone drummer. But it was amazing what he went on to do. It just types of music you'd be surprised. Lynn Mabry and Don Silva were backup singers for him later on. And we might know some of those people, or you might know some of those ladies from being backup singers for like the Talking Heads. Lynn Mabry in particular was, um, she's in the video, the Stop Making Sense. Oh yeah. Um, you know, those those ladies were great and really added so much to the show. And again, 
fun, you know, oh, yeah, talented. Yeah. They, they were great and just phenomenal singers. Yeah, and, and that's where uh, the Talking Heads were kind of kind of co-opting this idea of multi-gender, um, multi-racial band with positive, fun party jams. You know? Right. like to uh, do positive things, you know, I don't, I don't like to bring anybody down. What you put into it is what you get out of it. This is interesting. Another person who... Uh, was temporarily in um, Sly and the Family Son was Bobby Womack. Have you heard of Bobby Womack's? You know, he has a lot of uh, history. He had his own career in his own right, again, um, going through different iterations. But what's crazy is this is where it really starts to go off the rails. Um, This is about uh, 1971, I guess, or 1970. And I'm going to read this quote because it just blows my mind. This is where Bobby Womack was in the band. And he said that the Sly Stone was almost came to be two different guys. There was kind of the silly fun guy, and then there was the dark guy who was kind of starting to emerge, almost sort of a black Sid Barrett, probably because of the drugs and stuff, and also getting to be very paranoid, also living in this kind of circus-like atmosphere that's not, you know, based in any sort of reality. Wait, 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 wait. Hello there, ladies and gentlemen. Would you mind, please, being very quiet? Shut up! Quiet. Shut the fuck up. So he says, I used to go over to Sly's place for entertainment value. It was crazy. Everything you could think of. Girls, drugs, guns, complete wacko. He even had a zoo. He had this monkey. So it's like, all right, why, why, do, why do you, when you get rich, why do you all of a sudden want to have a zoo? Right. Yeah, that's yeah the Michael Jackson thing. You know? Yeah, yeah. So he says, um, every time I went over to his house, this monkey would clamber down out of his cage and bash his pit bull over the head, and then he'd jump back, climb up in the cage. And it used to draw drive the dog crazy. Only this time, Sly greased the fence, and the monkey slid back down. The dog tore the monkey's chest out right in front of all of us. He says, it was like the fall of Rome with afros. Wow. <laughs> you know, Sly had, like, people he called friends, or who called him a friend, and they'd come in and he would let them manage his business at this point. So he'd bring in somebody who, who didn't know what they are doing, had bad motives, was probably also on drugs, and then it got to be to where he would, you know, hey, go do this for me, go do that for me. Hey, go tell Larry Graham to get his ass to practice. You know what I mean? And then it starts to get real ugly with the other bandmates. The other bandmates start kind of obviously being resentful, a little bit of fearful. They were out of loop. They didn't know what was going on other than, you know, monkeys getting their chest ripped out over at Sly's house. Right, yeah. You know, and it just, you know, and then you got some dude coming to you, hmm. sent there by Sly, and I'm sure he didn't come and tell him very nice. And it got to be some point where there was such antagonism and violence and fear in that organization that supposedly Larry Graham was trying to find a hitman to kill Sly Stone. And then Sly and his guys got word of this after a gig, and it got really violent and really ugly to where Larry Graham and his wife had to run through a restaurant, run into a bathroom, and climb out the back window to escape Sly's goons. Holy shit. Yeah, I, I didn't realize it had gotten that bad. It, it it could be a movie. In fact, it would be a really harrowing movie. But uh, I think it would be every bit 
as intriguing, if not more, than like the Ray Charles story. Wow. If they would do it. Somebody should do it. I would love for them to do it. But well, they're probably going to wait till Sly's When Sly dead. kicks it, yeah. Yes. That's nothing. Have you seen him? I, I, I saw a picture, but I haven't seen any video or anything. It's, it's sad. Yeah. It's sad. As long as I can remember, like literally as long as I can remember, since I started knowing this band's name, I'd heard of his reputation of not showing up for shows, doing a half-assed show, jumping on stage doing one song and taking off. There's countless videos of this kind of thing through the years where they would say, Sly's back, Sly and the Family's done, we're going to be playing at Coachella, you know? And there's all these other stages, but everybody's going to his stage, they want to see. And of course the band comes on an hour late, they have technical issues, he jumps up there finally, does about half a song, goes on this rant about his managers and all this kind of stuff, says he has to take a piss, Runs off stage, you don't see him again for seven years. I've been kidnapped. I've been, uh, listen closely. This is the kind of shit that didn't make a kid. So listen. I was a half hour away from a gym in between. So he was Axl Rose. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, he became sort of a, you know, Howard Hughes-ish kind of, and again, probably over all the same reasons. Pressure, the paranoia, the self-doubt, the mental health issues, the, the drugs. drugs. Yeah. Absolutely the drugs. Um, but yeah, he was doing coke, PCP, crack. But you should see that clip of him and Richard on the Dick Cavett show. They are fucked up. They like kind of do a half-ass jam with Richard Pryor playing the drums. Mm -hmm. It maybe lasts a minute. Really? Yeah, and it it's just it's just wild, you know. It's I I don't know if at that time people realized these dudes are on national TV, coked out of their brains. Yeah, you know. But they were clearly if you watch it. Sly was saying on yesterday's show that Richard would play drums. Why they got us doing this on this show? Sly Stone and his new drummer. If you want me to stay, I'll be around today. Come on, Richard. Oh, you told you I could play drums. How you gonna fire me on national TV, chump? <laughs> All right, so 67, he comes out with a whole new thing, and that's a great name for that title. Uh, absolutely, that. yeah. And so what happens over the next course of a few years is I, I've seen writers say things like there's black music before Sly Stone and there's black music after Sly Stone. I think the, the, the piece that is there that came initially was this incredible exuberance, this confidence, and this kind of, like, you know when Prince is at his best? And he's not coming across as a dick, but he's coming across as in control. How cool that is. Like, how everybody loves that. Everybody loves to see that. It's once you become an asshole about it that everybody hates it. But at this point, this first couple of albums, this is like, you know, influential in the formation and, you know, popularization of what would eventually become known as funk music. Right, yeah. You know, so you take some of Sly Stone, you add in some of your James Brown. You know, some people argue James was it, but... Really, as far as kind of taking the existing pieces and putting together and making something out of it intentionally, you know, Sly just pieced that all together. You know, he had the San Francisco psychedelia edge. He had, you know, sort of the, the what was popular, the Motown pop right. sort of roots. Then he had the band roots. And then he had the kind of like thing where he's, he's shouting out and encouraging his bandmates and the audience, and he's like, let's get together, y'all. Let's do this. Let's party. Let's have fun. And everybody was going along with the ride, you know? Yeah. That's what makes it so cool. 
Yeah. You were one of the first black musicians who have a wide range of audience. A lot of white people followed your music and bought your music. Why do you suppose your music did that? I think it has to do with uh, songs that involve everybody and a message that involves everybody. Everybody wants to be happy in uh, the songs that we do or songs that I, I feel should make everybody happy. You want to make people feel good with your music? Yes. So you have up music, would you say? I'd say so. When it starts to get, I think, to genius level is when he hits stand. Stand, to me, damn, that record. That Yeah, great record. Stand is just such a, a phenomenal record. And again, you have these timeless songs. You know, everyday people. You see that in commercials and stuff, but I mean, it's a really great song. It's not just it. It's not just all happy kumbaya type thing. It's like you know, there's a message in there. Right, and, and a good message. Absolutely. We got to live That was probably the last time he could say he's everyday people. Because after that, he was not. shortly thereafter that album all of a sudden like for example the temptations go from my girl to psychedelic shack and they start going to that sort of vibe Oh, 
I think to see a lot of Sly's impact would be to go back and look at the 80s and the early 90s during the alternative movement. Ice-T and Perry Farrell from Jane's Addiction doing a version of Don't Call Me Nigger Whitey. And they were both really trying to get to the essence of that song and trying to make a statement. And I'm sure that a lot of people who didn't know where this came from were probably shocked and confused. Don't call me nigger Whitey. You notice that that song is basically two sides of the worst aspects of racism. He's addressing both sides and he's kind of laying it out there for people to make up their own minds about it. And I think most people got it. And as Sly declined, it also still continued to resonate in pop music because then the temptations go to Papa Was a Rolling Stone. Right. Right there, just those three hit singles show how much the temptations changed. And it came back to their producer, Norman Whitfield, was really, really buying into the Sly Stone thing. Apparently at first, he was, he was resistant to it. He said it was a fad. He told the other guys in the temptations, you just keep doing the My Girl and, you know, all that. But then they come into the studio and he's got these songs that are just a little more out there. And they start getting a little more political, a little darker. And it's because of him. He wasn't doing it on purpose. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> His songs started getting grittier and stuff. And the sound started getting grittier and muddier. So if you go and put on stand, and you know this, you put on stand and then you put on There's a Riot Going On. Yeah. It sounds like something has happened, and something has happened oh, in yeah. a very short period of time. Well, and, and actually, it's it's that record. Uh, there's a riot going on. That, to me, that's where it, it started to get less good. So he is recording and erasing and recording and erasing. You can do that on a computer unlimited times on tape, diminishing results. So as he added layers and layers and layers, it got muddier and muddier, and there's bleed through. So when he would erase a track, it wouldn't completely erase the residue. This is the first major artist record to use a drum machine. So he's using this drum machine, but he he has very limited capabilities as you can imagine. Right. You know, it probably has three speeds and two beats at best. And so he was using that to kind of demo with, but he's not throwing away anything. He's just kind of building on top of it. And so when you listen, sometimes you can hear what's clearly a drum machine. He's playing over top of it and he's pushing it and bending it. And he's playing in and out of it. And he's doing this kind of uh, the way that you might use a brand new tool in your garage to where you're maybe overusing it, you're underusing it, you're not using it the right way. But the interesting thing is, think about When Doves Cry by Prince. Right. Electronic drums mixed with real drums 
and how Prince during the Revolutionary in particular did that. He would have the two electronic drums with the real drummer and even that at 1984 was kind of groundbreaking. Right. You know, it had usually been one or the other most. He got that from Sly and the Family Stone. Sly got it from PCP and having a lot of money, you know, yeah. I guess. <laughs> yeah. You know, but that's why that record sounds that way. And I think that's the first initial thing that turns people off when they get to that period. Right. As soon as you put on that album, it almost sounds like something's wrong with the tape. Something's wrong with the volume. Something's wrong with the mix. Yeah. You know? That was the first thing I thought when I listened to it, is that this is a bad mix. That girl looks forward to another meeting. Just like everyday people I know looks forward to another simple meeting. There, a band of woods looks forward to happening. Just any old player you know, all he needs is rating. Time is education. This to me is one of many albums that are from that period generally, but also later where the whole term of lo-fi comes in. Right. I don't know if you've listened to much Iggy Pop and the Stooges. A, a bit. But the Raw Power album also technically sounds like shit. Ultimately a positive for the feel of the record because to me the raw crappy sound is almost a concept in holding together all the songs. One child grows up to be somebody that just loves to learn and another child grows up to be somebody you just love to burn mom loves the both of them you see it's in the blood both kids are good mom blood's thicker than the mud it's a family affair You ever listen to like a bootleg uh, concert, right? Mm -hmm. The very first minute you put on something, you have to kind of immerse yourself in the sound to get comfortable with it. Right. You know, it's like sort of stepping into a hot tub. You have to wait a minute to slowly sink into it. And then once you're in it, you don't notice it so much. Right. You know? And that's what happens with this record and other lo-fi records. You really submerge yourself in it. You don't pay as much attention to that. You start not worrying about the muffled kick drum sound. You know, it becomes part of the experience subconsciously. But you're listening to those records, and then later on, you kind of go back and realize how many of these records actually sounded really crappy. Right, yeah. But the performance and the vibe 
partly given off by that crappy sound is what ultimately makes the record. Right. I think that's really cool, and I think it kind of comes from this. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, there was lo-fi recordings before. You know, you go all the way back to Robert Johnson stuff. Right. In an age where music sounds were getting better and better and better, he puts out one that is a huge leap backwards sound quality. Right. And major technological advances, engineering that had not been possible just a few years ago. Right. All of a sudden, getting so much better. He has none of that in his basement studio. For a lot of people, including things that I had read during this period in Rolling Stone Record Guide and stuff, mm-hmm. that was the end. A lot of people are like, he makes this great album, but that's the end of it. If you want to see the trajectory or the, I don't know what you would call it, the, the difference between Sly and the Family Stone and what Sly Stone became, the easiest way to do it is to play back to back. Thank you for letting me be myself. And thank you for talking to me, Africa. Which is basically the same song. Thank You For Letting Me Be Myself is a celebration, the inner freak in yourself. Then, there's a riot going on. Thank you for talking to me, Africa. I don't know, but I think what he's saying is basically the elements. He's saying, thank you for talking to me, Africa. Thank you for reminding me of of who I'm supposed to be. But underneath it, he's being held back. He's being held down. He's being his self that they were letting him be before is now caged and labeled and put in a box. Yeah. And these are the these are the people that that supposedly wanted to wanted to help him. And they wouldn't just let him be himself. Anymore. Right. So when you listen to those two songs side by side, to me, everything it's the same words, it's the same song, but you'll see the difference. <laughs> and the context, I think it'll illustrate exactly what happened to this artist and why he's a genius and why there are two periods of his art that are fundamentally important to the basis of music. I really like the album after, Fresh. I also like the album Small Talk. And we had talked about Small Talk before because that's where that Loose Booty song comes from. Right, yeah. Meshack, you know. Yeah. Really good funk albums. Because people had kind of given up on Sly. He'd, he'd start to become more of a joke that he's not going to show up. That he always dresses in the most extravagant, <laughs> bizarre... Like, he's never not Sly. Right, you yeah. Know? To where he's starting to be sort of like a Prince character, but you don't ever think of Prince as pathetic. Right, yeah. Yeah, pr- pr- Prince has been strange. Prince is strange. Prince might be an asshole. There might be a lot of things, but you don't think of it as like sad, pathetic Prince. Yeah, no, you know? no. You but people were starting to think that about Sly. When I was just a little girl, I asked my mother, what will I be? Will I be pretty? Will I be rich? Here's what she said to me. Kate! 
My favorite song probably on that Fresh album is Que Sera Sera. Yeah, you, I, I listened to that because you, you had texted to, to yeah. listen to it. It, it kind of grew on me. Yeah. Because when you first hear it, it's it's almost comical in a way, but not in an uncomfortable comicalness. Well, it, that's exactly, it's uncomfortable. Yes. Rose Stone sings the female part. When When he comes in, you know, yeah. it's like he comes in so hard yeah. that it sounds uncomfortable. You know, it sounds really odd. And that's probably the first, if you listen up the very first time you stop the tape there, you probably will never go back and listen to it again, you know? What happens is that song just gels. But talk about a song that feels like drugs. Right. That song to me feels like hard drugs. It feels like heroin or something. It's sort of the juxtaposition of her singing, which there's nothing wrong with at all, with his singing, which is just out there. But again, it does grow on you. Listen to it again in in the context of this sounds like drugs. Absolutely. Be, because if you listen to like a like a Elliot Smith song, uh, "Strung Out Again." Yes. If you listen to that, uh, the first time you hear that song, it, it's jarring. It's jarring and uncomfortable and everything. And then once you look at it through the context of this guy's on serious drugs.
kills me that this guy is so gifted, so one of a kind, but he'll break your heart and he'll embarrass you. And he'll hurt you. It just comes with the territory. After that, the albums are called High On You. Heard you missed me? Well, I'm back. Back on the right track. And ain't no way but the one way. It's like he keeps trying to tell the audience, listen, I really have my shit together now. You know, please buy the record. If I buy a record by Sly Stone, am I going to get home and find out there's no actual record in the sleeve? Right, yeah. yeah. (laughs) 30 uh, seconds into the first song, it's all of a sudden going to turn to one, like, band around the record that has nothing on it. Right, yeah. You know, I mean, because that's kind of what he was doing. And it got to where he couldn't get shows booked, so therefore the band couldn't play, therefore people weren't getting paid, and slowly it just spun down into the ground. He would occasionally, somebody would try to throw him a life raft, you know, uh, George Clinton, Parliament Funkadelic, who were hugely influenced by him, try to help him out, it ain't working. A lot of people who end up on drugs, they lose their friends. You can't rely on them anymore. They become a pariah, and they end up homeless, and that's exactly what happened. He was literally homeless not that long ago. There's stories that, you know, that, that you, you want to go into rehab because you're still using. Is that true? Are you going into rehab? I'm going to rehab. You're going to go to rehab? Yeah. So you are still using? Well, no, but I'm going to be through with it. You're going to be through with it? Yeah. How long have you been clean? Oh, about two weeks. About two weeks? Yeah. Okay, so you're going to go to rehab. When are you going to rehab? Uh, about a week. About a week? Yeah. Okay. Would this be your first time in rehab or? About eight times. Eight, eight times. So what, what do you think is going to be different this time than from the past times that you've gone? Well, because I'm going to do it the way I want to do it. People are saying you're broke, but you're getting an RV tomorrow. How how that works? People know me when they, you know, they'll make things easier for me. So it was a gift? Almost all the things are gifts. He was living in a van in Compton, California, with uh, an electrical cord running out of the van to a nice person's house, you know, so he could watch TV or whatever it was he was doing with his electrical cord in there. Right. That's where he was. And he's still there mentally. Yeah. The difference is now, somebody on TV sees that, some lawyer sees that and says, hmm, goes to him and says, Sly, I can get you a million bucks. Yeah. You know, I'm going to make 10, but I can get you a million. And they go and do that, and so then he ends up with more money. He gets basically probably put back in the same situation of having money and having no guidance. And, you know, who knows? I wanted to talk about this and do the show before he dies because he's so important. Funkadelic sounds like albums after there's a riot going on. If you kind of stripped away the, the desperateness of it, there's still a lot of darkness, still a lot of drugs still all that but it especially if you start with the first one or have you heard maggot brain i have not
Maggot Brain is this brilliant record, and it's so far out of time. This this was a period where a lot of this music in this era from black artists just it, it's kind of like a hidden gems, you know. A lot of people know Parliament Funkadelic, as you know, but you're not unusual in the fact that you don't know the depth of this. You know, you you've certainly heard Flashlight. Right. I, I I've heard some stuff, but yeah, I've never really researched it. Right. Right. Well, when you listen to these records. It's a, it's a revelation, especially the early stuff, because they're breaking all the rules. And the reason they're able to break all the rules is because Sly broke them first, and now they're just taking the pieces and putting them back together in, in some weird-ass way that nobody's ever done before. And that's what George Clinton did. Right. And as weird as George Clinton is, he ain't got nothing on Sly as far as being unpredictable. Right. You couldn't have had Parliament Funkadelic. You could, not, not what they became. You couldn't have had what Prince has done many times through his years. Even if you get down to um, De La Soul, the rap artists, they were trying to break the mold of what rap was then, and they were taking a little bit from that sly stuff. If you take Public Enemy, uh, I mean, you know, people always, you know, you know that James Brown has been sampled to death. Oh, yeah. Well, Sly has too. And some of it obvious, some of it not. But most of it is the coolest stuff to me. And that is kind of where I would go back and hear this and then dig into the original records and really start to learn to enjoy the whole catalog. Right. You know, and the whole kind of realm of what he did. You know, he kind of became almost like a J.D. Salinger of soul music. Right. You know? He did his thing and then he went away. And this was before the Internet. We wouldn't even we'd have no idea where he was right now. Right. Yeah. You know, but they have been re- inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Deservedly. He's hugely influential. And you take a, a Sly Stone, a Jimi Hendrix, you know, from this era and stuff and think about the way they pushed integration of music. But bringing rock elements and soul elements and psychedelic elements and all this stuff together to me is some of my most favorite music. genre in, in my organization of music I'd call psychedelic soul. Right, yeah. And it, it encompasses things like Machine Gun by uh, Jimi Hendrix. Right. And early Funkadelic and pretty much all of Sly Stone. A certain period of um, The Temptations. Just this era, you know. And it's one of my favorite eras in music, but it is dark and it comes from a dark place. You wouldn't want to be there when it was being recorded. Well, I, I'm I'm definitely gonna research more into this whole style of music because I never really I always liked what I heard, but I never gave it much of a chance. But this past week, I've been listening to Sly and the Family Stone all week. Yeah, and well, it's just it's just amazing stuff. And how the hell did I miss this for this long? That's really another thing I'm I'm liking about the idea of this podcast is we can go and find new music, but to me, I like to find old new music. And the reason why is because you can kind of step back and see the conditions in which it was made and what's the story around it and where did it lead up to and, you know, that kind of thing. Because if we go right now and we listen to a brand new band or an upcoming band like Cage the Elephant, for example, we don't know where they're going, what they've come from, any of that stuff. 
they may have a great story ultimately, but it's not been written. You know, sometimes I like to know the ending. In this case, I love and could do a whole podcast on nothing but old music that most people haven't discovered. And I think they would like, like with this line of Family Stone, I knew you being a bass player would at least have some appreciation for it. It was more than appreciation. As soon as I got through from a whole new thing up to Small Talk, all those records, I listened to them multiple times over the week. Very rewarding. More, more than I expected. I'm going to create a Spotify playlist of the tracks discussed in the podcast. Yeah, definitely. If you haven't listened to Slide in the Family Stone, check them out. This has been produced by Donnie Shattuck.